It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. Well, almost, Guy Benson. This is Jason Chaffetz. I'm filling in for Guy, who is off on a very well-deserved vacation. He is off in Greece, and he's enjoying the weather, enjoying the food, and uh, we're glad that he's out. I think he's back on on Thursday, but uh, again, I'm filling in for Guy Benson on his show, an honor and a privilege to do so, so I thank him for doing that. Uh, we got a great lineup. Uh, we got a few hours together, and I hope you can join us for all of it, because there is uh, a lot going on in the news. There's lots to discuss, um, and we've got some great guests that will be joining us along the way. Uh, at the bottom of the hour, we'll be uh, joined with uh, Lee Zeldin, who is the congressman from New York. He's also running for the governor of New York, and uh, there's lots to talk about with Lee Zeldin. We also had Chad have Chad Wolf, uh, former acting uh, Department of Homeland Security uh, secretary. Uh, lots happening with immigration. You saw the news out about what's happening with these flights of bringing these children into New York and really all across the country and uh, really interesting questioning going on today at the White House uh, with Peter Ducey and Jen Psaki that we'll play for you and have a chance to discuss. Uh, we also have uh, Rachel Duffy. Uh, she, she is just, uh, uh, you see her as the host of Fox and Friends Weekend. Um, her husband served in the Congress when I was in the Congress. I, I served in the Congress. I was elected 2008. I, I started in 2009, was sworn in January 2009. I was basically there the whole time that Barack Obama was there and then left about six months after he left. So, uh, But I served with Sean Duffy. That's really where I got to know his wife, Rachel Duffy. But they're both Fox News contributors, and Rachel will join us on the show. And then we have uh, Colonel Steve Womack. He's also Congressman Steve Womack. He's a congressman from Arkansas. Uh, he was also – it was really interesting. I was out. Um, there in Egypt, uh, checking out one of our outposts there. And there was Colonel Womack's picture and, uh, lots happening with the military, lots happening with China. we get some thoughts on, on, uh, on the passing, the unfortunate passing of Colin Powell. Uh, but pleased to have, uh, Steve Womack, somebody also served with in the United States Congress. Uh, he's still a congressman there and, um, he has a lot to say about what's going on with the budget bills and, all the stuff that's trying to be crammed through before, supposedly before Halloween. That was what Standing Hoyer said was going to happen. He is the number two person from the in the House of Representatives on the Democratic side of the aisle, the majority. And uh, he said they're still committed to making sure that these uh, bills, two of which are pending, will pass. So we'll get some thoughts and perspective from uh, Steve Womack. And then uh, Alex Gray. Alex, um, you may not have heard of Alex before, but he played a pivotal role in the Trump administration. He was the chief of staff to the National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien. When he was the National Security Advisor, his number two, his deputy, if you will, uh, his chief of staff uh, was Alex Gray. So lots to talk about with China, North Korea, missiles, uh, our, our national security, our national defense 
And uh, I, I think we'll have a, a good discussion. But I really wanted to kick things off and and talk a little bit about what's going on, and not going on, but what's going on in Virginia. I think it is a fascinating study in uh, the approach that the two major parties have to education. Um, I think Terry McAuliffe is, I give him an A in terms of being candid. I think he tends to say things out loud that Democrats usually don't say out loud. I think it's, he gets to the heart of what they actually believe and he, and he, and he says them and it often, some people say, oh, it gets him in trouble, but he's really just trying to say what he actually believes. And I think you should believe him when he says it. And the contrast with a new person, an up-and-coming person, somebody who is really going to make that governor's race in Virginia, I give uh, Terry McAuliffe, who used to be the governor, um, they have term limits in Virginia, so you can only run for a term, then you got to step down, but then you can run again. And uh, Glenn Youngkin, um, great business background, very impressive candidate, quick on his feet in terms of being able to articulate the issues. And a lot happening there in Virginia, and some people say it'll be a bellwether. And I, here's the way I frame it and look at it. I, I really, if you look at the last two presidential races, basically Donald Trump lost by 10 percentage points. So any cut into that 10% margin, I think Republicans will look at that in terms of a victory. On paper, Democrats should dominate in this this gubernatorial race. Republicans should absolutely lose in this race. But enthusiasm is everything in in politics. And the enthusiasm right now, I think objectively, look, I'm a I'm a registered Republican. I served in Congress as a Republican. Um, but I think objectively, if you look at the at the race, there's not a lot going on good for uh, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris. Um, nationally, they've overstepped everything from energy prices to foreign affairs to immigration. But it's education that really is the forefront. And as you look at the power of a governor, so many states, it, some it's the majority, if not the majority, it's very close to the majority of the state budget of which the governor can ad help administer and administrate uh, actually falls into the education. So it is a pivotal, uh, a pivotal uh, issue. And let's listen. It's a short clip. Okay. It's four seconds, but it gets to the heart of what uh, Terry McAuliffe believes governor, former governor McAuliffe believes this is uh, clip 18 about his belief on whether parents should be involved in their kids' education. Yeah, I've parents, you stopped the bill that I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. That's the heart of the issue. Uh, yeah, I stopped the bill that I don't think should be telling schools what they should teach. So his approach is, look, we know better. Democrats know better. Government knows better. Bureaucrats know better. Don't listen to the individual individual parents. Why should the parents be involved in this? It's just their kids. Come on. Well, let's listen to Glenn Youngkin and his approach. He was on with Laura Ingram on the Ingram Angle and what he had to say about this. Clip 16. He said it six times since then that parents don't have a role in their kids' education. And now, of course, what he's seeing is that parents across the Commonwealth of Virginia are standing up and saying, no, sir, 
we actually have a fundamental right to be in our kids' education and to have a say over what happens with curriculum, to say what happens in that building that we send our children to every day, assuming that it's going to be safe. And guess what? We're now finding out that it's not. No, well, Laura, Terry McAuliffe is, is trying very hard to change this narrative because he knows that parents are done with him. And that's why we're about to go win this race and make a statement for parents across the nation. This is the heart of the issue. This is, this is you know, it's every once in a while, I mean, inevitably, if you're a, a, a candidate for a major office and you got a microphone or a television camera or just a video recorder, an iPhone, for goodness sake, in your face, you're going to say something that maybe can be taken out of context. Oh, that was just one sentence. And But I think uh, Glenn Youngkin makes a really good point, and this is a position that Terry McAuliffe has taken multiple times. It's not something that he just kind of accidentally said by some mistake and then it was no this is something that he said multiple times i also find it interesting now that uh, terry mcauliffe is kind of trying to backpedal and saying quote i've always valued the concerns of parents end quote well that that's a cleanup on aisle eight um that i think most people in virginia are going to say yeah yeah. Now, now that it's pulled, now that you're getting reamed for it, now that the uh, opponent is running ads on it, now that it's been exposed how you approach education, that you have this elitist democratic approach to it. Yeah. Guess what? Oh, now I yes. Oh, I really value. We value your input. That that's. I just don't think that's going to fly. Um, I just think it's wrong. The other thing that I find that's interesting going on in in. Um, in Virginia, is who and who is not out there campaigning um, and supporting uh, Terry McAuliffe. Uh, it was McAuliffe who said that uh, the Biden administration is bringing headwinds, um, headwinds to his campaign because he's just not very popular out there. Well, why would why would Joe Biden be popular anywhere? I, I can't really think of something that he would actually point to as a success. But I thought it was also interesting that they brought in Stacey Abrams, who didn't win anything. I mean, she lost. She was a losing candidate. But let's listen to Cut 17 because Stacey Abrams, uh, she has an interesting approach to why or what her message is. You see, I'm here to tell you that just because you win doesn't mean you're won. We've got folks who are ready to take back what they think is theirs, but they are not entitled to our progress. They are not entitled to our justice. They are not entitled to our votes. But either we use them or we lose them. I come from a state where I was not entitled to become the governor. But as an American citizen and a citizen of Georgia, I'm going to fight for every person who has the right to vote to be able to cast that vote. Well, Stacey Abrams, um, you were not entitled to be the, become the governor because you got 55,000 or so votes less than your opponent. And there's a reason why you weren't sworn in as governor. It had nothing to do with the color of your skin. It had nothing to do other than you were the least popular person on the ballot on election day. You got less votes, and so you were not elected governor of the good state of Georgia. So I don't know. She uses, throws away the, around that word entitled, entitled, entitled. And I, I think you got to be very careful on about this. Entitlement is, um, 
it, it can be very tricky the way she's she's trying to use it. And for her to say, I was not entitled to become governor. No, nobody's entitled to become governor. She just happened to get lot less votes because she spewed some really radical ideas that were not resonating as much as her opponent's ideas were resonating. So it's interesting that she was out there, but what you have seen very little of uh, along the way um, is Joe Biden. Uh, Now, they may bring him out at the finish line here in a tightly scripted, no questions, you know, let's make sure he sticks right on the teleprompter. It's kind of hard not to have the sitting president come out to Virginia where, you know, it's a hop, skip and a jump away. Uh, I, but the other thing that I think is absolutely fascinating in a study of just raw politics is the lack of presence by uh, Kamala Harris. Now, if you recall, she's had some major problems with her staff. She did recently hire two people to help her with her image. And she's creating a little bit of chaos there in Virginia because of these videos that she's putting together that want to show in these uh, supposedly 300 churches across across Virginia. But there may be kind of a problem with this. Listen to Jonathan Turley. He was on the Ingram Angle on whether Kamala Harris has violated federal law uh, with her Virginia church campaign. Cuts 15. Well, the Biden administration has to enforce our tax laws, including rules governing 501c3 organizations, including churches. Now, part of those regulations include what's called the Johnson Amendment, and that prohibits direct politicking in churches in order to be tax-exempt. So if churches play this video, they would be in violation of federal law. If the White House participated in this plan to have direct politicking, they would have assisted in that violation. Now, that puts them in a rather awkward position since their administration has to enforce this very rule. So let's all take a guess and see if it's actually going to be enforced. Anybody think it's going to be enforced? Raise your hand. All right. Yeah, I can see that most of you kept your hands down. So, uh, yeah, there's a reason why she's not out there. She's not good. She's not popular. She's not good impromptu. She's prone to saying something really bad. And her video that she's putting out there may be a violation of federal law. It's going to be interesting as we watch this race in Virginia Um, I think it's going to be a lot closer than the 10 percentage points that Terry McAuliffe statistically should win by. But it's coming up, and it's in uh, just about two weeks. All right, we're going to be back with more of The Guy Benson Show. Stay with us here on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services. Marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze 
to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. If you think about those images of uh, ships, for example, waiting at anchor on the West Coast, you know, every one of those ships uh, is full of record amounts of goods that Americans are buying uh, because demand is up, because income is up, uh, because the president has successfully guided this economy out of the teeth of a terrifying recession. I'm sure Secretary Buttigieg practiced that line. It was well rehearsed and um, I'm sure delivered aptly. Uh, Unfortunately, it doesn't reflect the full reality of what we're experiencing here in the United States with the backlog uh, that is sitting there at the ports. Uh, This is something that over the course of time, Democrats fundamentally changed how these ports work. Uh, The unions have played a huge role. Uh, in working with the administration to change many of the rules. They went to an electronic standard for how truckers log. They reduced the number of hours that truckers can actually do trucking. They changed the uh, ramifications of which trucks can actually be put under a container and pull them out uh, based on sort of a Green New Deal-ish type thing that was going on there, using that word lightly, uh, loosely, um, in California. So a certain number of trucks could not get in there. Uh, People will, in the Biden administration, try to say, oh, the truckers are the problem. Truckers are not the problem. In fact, I can't think of a time in our nation's history when truckers have been the problem. Um, And to suggest that the Biden policies have allowed the economy to soar like this seems to forget that pre-COVID and kind of where we are today, where COVID's not over, but pre-COVID to now, there are four to five million less people in the workforce. Um, That has a huge, huge impact in our ability Uh, to provide goods and services. It affects the trucking industry. It affects all sorts of things. Um, And so you couple that all together with the rapid rise and expansion of the federal government. Think about it. Federal government is now going to spend about one out of every $4 in this country, pretty much north of of 25% of our gross domestic product will be spent. Now, part of that is dependent upon which of the bills the Democrats go up and spend. But when you have so much, so many federal dollars chasing these goods and services, guess what? Those prices go up. So 
If your personal income did not rise by about 5.5%, guess what? Your money is worth less. And I don't have to, to you know, pull out every stat. You know that gasoline costs more. Housing is just up an incredible amount. Eggs, food, I mean, you, you name it, these prices have been rising. To suggest that Joe Biden has successfully guided this uh, economy in a direction and that's what's causing the backlog, and the, that is just not right. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. It's not accurate. Democrats own this. They changed the policies the child, the, the, that was detrimental to our economy, including energy. Stay with us. We'll be back with more of The Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The Guy Benson Show. Hi, I'm Jason Chaffetz, filling in for Guy Benson, and I'm the host of the Jason in the House podcast. I hope you get a chance to go over and check out the podcast. I did one with Brett Baer most recently, and uh, tomorrow morning we've got a new one coming out, and I think you'll really like it. Um, I believe it's the one we did with uh, Trey Gowdy. So Congressman Trey Gowdy on the Jason in the House podcast, that'll be out tomorrow morning. But the one with Brett Baer is out, out, is out right now. All right, uh, some news uh, coming out, breaking. Uh, Department of Homeland Security Secretary uh, Mayorkas is tested positive for COVID-19. This comes days after an event with Biden. We hope that he's going to be okay. Nobody wants to see uh, somebody coming down with COVID, and if they do, I hope they are able to overcome it and overcome it quickly. And uh, I disagree with this, uh, this man on probably most every policy he's put forward so far, but at the same time, uh, nobody wants to see him get... Uh, get sick and uh, deal with this, and I hope he's able to take uh, get the proper care and and get uh, full recovery uh, and get back out there. Now, um, I am pleased to have joining us on the show Congressman Lee Zeldin. He's the candidate for the governor there in the state of New York, but I was able to serve with him in the United States Congress. Uh, Congressman Zeldin, thanks for joining us. It's great to be back with you. No, really do appreciate it. Um, I, I want to kick things off and talk about a, a variety of topics, but let's listen first to Miranda Devine uh, about, she was on with Tucker Carlson, about how the Biden administration is secretly flying unaccompanied migrants into New York in the dead of the night. What we didn't know was where they were going. So we had a tip off that they were flying into uh, Westchester uh, County Airport in White Plains in the dead of night, two, three, four in the morning. Uh, so last week we went and had a look and we did see um, two planes fly in with uh, about 100 illegal or 100 migrants uh, get off the plane. Uh, and then they were put onto buses, charter buses. Uh, they had a police escort out of the airport. 
and then they were dispersed around uh, various places in New York, Long Island, uh, also New Jersey. They were dropped off on a rest area at the New Jersey Turnpike. It's pretty stunning. So, Lee Zeldin, uh, what's your reaction to that? Well, first off, uh, great work by Miranda Devine. I mean, she has been on top of this, and uh, I'm glad that the most recent reporting is now coming out to bring us further to light. Uh, and, and this is greatly concerning. And I share what you just mentioned re related to the secretary. Uh, we want to see this administration, Max, involved in turning things around. I I'm greatly concerned that they are covering up decisions made where they're taking surges of people who are coming across our southern border and just spreading them out throughout the United States. They, they feel the need not to tell the public about it. They feel the need to do it in the middle of the night. Uh, and suddenly, what might be one day, images of uh, you know, thousands of people coming across one part of the southern border, and then the next day, there's no one there anymore, and people are wondering, hey, where did they all go? And that the administration has been pushing this narrative where you know they might be telling you about some of them who get sent back, and then as, as if that image, that story, that statement of some going back answers the question that the rest of us have of like, well, where's everybody else? And, uh, and thank you to uh, Miranda for her great reporting. Uh, it's the policies, the statements coming out of this administration, going back to their last campaign, that has turned this into a full-blown crisis on our southern border. It's only going to get worse because they're handling this as if they're living through a Democratic National Convention, and this is all just domestic political spin as opposed to actually showing leadership, going to the part of the border where we're seeing the, this the worst, hearing from the people directly involved, backing up law enforcement, and enacting policies that actually will enforce our rule of law and have a, a strong, effective, secure border. Yeah, you know, it's pretty stunning to me that Joe Biden, having been in political office in D.C. for nearly 50 years, has never visited the border. That I mean, that to me is just unbelievable. And then you couple that with uh, uh, Kamala Harris, who's supposedly in charge in charge of the border. Uh, you know, doing a quick drive by there, a flight into El Paso, and checking the box, saying, "Oh yeah, well I've done that," um, but never answering any questions. And yet we hear by the hundreds of thousands, people are illegally dispersed or are getting across and going into into the, to our country but for homeland security to then shuttle them this idea that they're dropped off on some new jersey turnpike rest stop i mean it sounds like they're almost complicit with the human trafficking uh, part of this story oh bingo i mean that that's such an important point this isn't just about people who are illegally crossing it's the fentanyl that's coming across you could reference the, the sex trafficking, the, the drug trafficking, the labor trafficking, I, the, the sex trafficking. And these are issues that Democrats at other times with other debates they speak out on. Well, why are we not talking about that reality of this dangerous mission that your policies are encouraging people to turn their kids, their teenagers, uh, their young sons, daughters over to strangers 
to try to bring him up on his journey. They actually feel like it's worth the risk. Uh, from start to finish, this is a hugely dangerous journey, and, and the finish isn't at the border. The, the finish piece of it continues when you have these flights go these areas, they get on the buses, and now I, mean, I put out a statement earlier today asking questions like, where are they going? You know, I mean, there's, there's other pieces related to the vetting uh, that are just unanswered. I mean, we, we deserve, and when I say we, I'm not talking about members of Congress. I'm talking about the American people deserve answers to their questions because what you just stated about what happens to them once they get off the bus, and you talk about compl- being complicit, the average American across this country is asking the same exact question and they're not getting any answers. So uh, when I ask the question, it's not for me. We, we each represent districts, and you were in Congress. You were committee chairman. You were the chair of the oversight committee in the House. You, 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 sh- you deserve answers, not for you, but because you have millions of people all across a state, all across this entire country who demand it. Um, I, I mean, I, it's an unanswered question of where these people are going. No, and it should be a simple, you know, if they put this plan together, they said that this is a well-thought-out plan, then they should be able to answer these questions. Uh, where are they going? Uh, they changed the definition of who they're going to hand them off to. It used to be it just uh, it was to family members. Now they call them well-vetted. Well, how do they vet them? And I, I, I'm afraid that we're going to wake up a couple of years from now, and we're going to start to hear these horrific stories of young people put in the hands of predators, put in the hands of gangs, uh, MS-13, that they have figured out how to game this, um, and then they get involved in the drug trade or whatever it might be, uh, human trafficking, sex trade, then and that the Biden-Harris administration was complicit in actually moving and trafficking these people around. And the other big question I think we have to ask is, okay, so now that you brought them in here, what are they supposed to do for jobs, for income, for healthcare, for education, for housing? If they're here illegally, it's illegal to get a job. And and so it just all sorts of problems. Look, Lee Zeldin, you are running for the governor uh, of, of New York, and you have an incredible chance of actually pulling this off. I, I want you to listen to this um, this uh, quote from uh, uh, Mitch McConnell, the minority leader there on the Senate floor. It's clip nine about what's going on uh, with inflation and, and what you're seeing and hearing and feeling in New York. Cut nine. On paper, American workers have been getting raises. The average workers' paychecks have gotten bigger over the last year. But the Democrats' inflation has cannibalized all those gains and then some. Any man or woman in the country who hasn't, hasn't gotten a pay raise of 5.5% this year has actively, effectively had their pay cut by the Democrat inflation. What are you feeling seeing in New York? I'm, I'm hearing people talking about how it's costing more to fill up their gas tank that they are now putting oil into their homes because we're getting into that season, starting to get cold out. It's costing them more to do that. Uh, They're seeing empty shelves, and these stories are coming from all across this entire country. Uh, The inflation is something that is going to be compounded um, to that point of job growth 
You know, one is we need everybody to get back into the workforce. There's an aspect here that's causing a labor shortage that we have to address. I mean, all this stuff, in a way, you could say it's separate, but it's also connected. Government should not be incentivizing people more to stay at home rather than go back to work. You're an able-bodied adult. There's an available job in your community. You need to go back to work unless you have a very strong, specific, compelling reason. As far as the Democrats down in Washington, now is not the time for trillions of dollars of new spending. And they want to increase taxes. And if you're concerned about supply chain problems, that's causing prices to go up as well. Uh, and, you know, the Secretary of Transportation, I mean, he's he, he's in la-la land talking about you know, thinking that you're in a, a Democratic National Convention. I mean, we have real concerns of people who, you know, they, they the companies that are stuck offshore, they can't get their products through the port fast enough. There aren't enough truck drivers there waiting to move it. There are people who want to become truck drivers. They're waiting to get their approvals for their licenses. But when you increase the corporate tax rate, in order to pay for your several trillions of dollars in new spending, how is that going to add more manufacturing jobs? How is that going to raise wages here in New York and across the entire country? To Senator McConnell's point about how much more you have to be making in order, and, and if you're not, you're effectively getting a pay cut. I mean, all of these policies collectively, they're going to make things worse, not better. Uh, and, and, you know, you could say that these are each individual issues. Uh, some might say that they're not connected, depending on how you know, you're analyzing it. I would say, in a way, when you're looking at inflation, the economy, jobs, it's all connected. Yeah, and and you know, the Democrats would argue that, oh, Joe Biden has successfully guided guided us out of a, a, a pending recession, and then at the same time they say, well, but. We've got to pass this trillions of dollars in new spending in order to to really get us going in the right direction. And uh, Brett Hume on Special Report, I think, had an interesting take on, on how the Democrats are looking to get something out of this reconciliation bill. It, it's just they have this insatiable desire to tax and spend. And when you have all three, the House, the Senate and the presidency, it's just there's just too much money sitting there. Democrats... There's just no way they're going to let it sit there. Listen to cut seven here on Brit Hume's take. One has to believe that in the end, uh, after all, Manchin has said he would favor a spending bill, a social spending bill, just not one as big as the staggering $3.5 trillion that Senator Sanders has claimed is absolutely necessary and indeed has said is, is a compromise. Um, Manchin is in the driver's seat here. He, he has the decisive vote along with uh, perhaps several other of his colleagues, and um, what he will go for is what they'll have to probably accept in order to get the thing passed. So I think my sense about it is that they're going to get something, and it'll probably be pretty large, just not as large as the one that was advertised. Yeah, that's always the problem, right? They shoot so high, then they cut it in half and say, oh, look how reasonable we are, and then you're looking at still the single largest bill in the history of the country. What do you think is going to happen as this plays out from your vantage point in Congress? I think that the uh, scales are going to flip a bit. Uh, instead of all the pressure that we saw on Mansion and Cinema, there there are going to be numbers now coming down. And then the question: Does AOC and all of her friends in the House start to say, "Well, you're you're cutting too much," and then they're faced with the decision of getting nothing or getting what they say is just not enough? Uh, yeah, as you just pointed out, some are defining 
the larger amount as the compromise amount. So we'll see because the margins are so small. I mean, you can, you know, yeah. with, with a 50-50 Senate, with uh, the House barely in the majority. But we also have to keep in mind it's not just the cost. It's also the policies that they want to add to it. Uh, you know, I'm wanting to keep track of everyone's financial transactions over $600. But keep an eye on all the other policies, too. Uh, but at the end of the day, we, we can't afford this. Uh, and I think that the Democrats are going to pay a huge toll at the ballot box because the average American understands it. And they're not going to buy the spin that everything is not it's not bad. There are no crises. Everything's going well. And then if they can't convince you on anything that uh, that they, is going well instead of bad, they'll well, it's just Trump's fault. It's well, not it's- going to work. And I think they're going to lose the House. Yeah, and, and for them to say, well, the reconciliation bill, it costs zero. There's no cost to it. Are you kidding? That is just the biggest bold-faced lie. Absolutely not true, and the American people are smart enough to to figure it out. Uh, Lee Zeldin, I wish we had more time. Uh, candidate for governor of New York, uh, current congressman from New York, um, and just an all-around good guy. Yeah, I really do appreciate you uh, joining us on the Guy Benson Show today. You got it. Take care, Jason. Thank you. All right. We'll be back with more of The Guy Benson Show right after this. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Generation of talk. Guy Benson. Jason in the house, the Jason Chaffetz podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. President Biden has to get more involved. Police reform, these two deals. The only one that's made any progress is the bipartisan infrastructure deal. Why did that make progress? Well, the, the White House ran the negotiations here. You know, at the end of the day, the power of the presidency is your leader of the party and you're also a convening entity. Get Manchin, Sanders in a room. I think the burden's on the White House. They've got to take control of this. They've got to sort of Get reality. The political eyes got bigger than their stomach in Congress. And I think hmm. that it's up to the White House to pull them back. And they haven't. They've let Congress work its will. And right now its will is stalemate. That was uh, Chuck Todd, uh, Meet the Press. Um, he got most of that right. I, I do think the, the White House has to get more involved if they, the Democrats want to actually solve this. But that last bit... Uh, it's a stalemate. No, it's not a stalemate. They got a losing bill in their hands right now. Um, Chuck Schumer can pull up that vote anytime he wants. Guess what? They haven't pulled it up because they don't have the votes because if they were to take the vote, it vote would it'd be defeated. Um, so don't tell me it's a stalemate. It's a loser right now. And I don't know that you can reconcile the reconciliation bill when you're talking about trillions of dollars in difference. Maybe they potentially can. I think America is also starting to understand the absurdity of the size of this bill and the White House blew it from day one by assuming that they had a mandate, which they don't, and assuming that the American people would believe that it's all paid for by a bunch of rich people. That was not true. It was never true. It won't be true. Um, and if you don't think you're going to feel the impacts of this bill, guess what? You already have. You're feeling it with inflation. You're going to feel it with this massive regulation that will come with a bill that is this big. 
It is taxing, it is spending, and it is regulation, and it is the antithesis. It is the opposite of what this country needs to do in order to thrive. If you believe that big government, more government, more and more government is actually going to solve your problems, make your life better, make the milk that you're buying and the gasoline that you're pumping uh, cheaper, uh, then you really need to think things through because it's not going to work. So I hope you stay with us. We got Chad Wolf after the top of the hour. This is the Guy Benson Show. Stay with us. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. Well, it's the Guy Benson Show. I just happen to be Jason Chaffetz filling in for Guy today because uh, he's taken a few well-deserved vacation days. And and uh, uh, he's been off in, in Greece eating well, getting some sunshine, and refreshing that uh, witty brain of his. And he'll be back um, uh, here hosting his own show before we know it. But... For right now, thank you for allowing me, Jason Javits, to fill in uh, for him. We got a lot of good guests coming up, uh, but I want to bring on right away. We got Chad Wolf. Chad is the uh, former acting Department of Homeland Security Secretary, and Chad, I thank you for joining us today on the Guy Benson Show. Hey, Jason, thanks for having me. Um, you know, we could do immigration stories all day, every day. Um, I, I really did feel like in your time in the Trump administration, things really got under control. The policy changed. There was more order. It was more secure. They were building the wall. Um, but the Biden administration now is just, I mean, it's out of control. We're talking numbers that are so large. And then if you look at today's cover of the New York Post, a photo Biden's secret flights taking these unaccompanied migrant kids, flying them into Westchester, New York, uh, dropping them off allegedly in um, the New Jersey Turnpike at a rest stop. I mean, what in the world is going on here, Chad? Well, this is this is what it looks like. Uh, this is what catch and release looks like. And it's why during the Trump administration, we worked so hard and so long to eliminate that policy. Uh, we saw it, you know, obviously during the Bush administration, Obama administration, and it just, it doesn't work. It doesn't work from a security perspective or from a human trafficking perspective uh, on any any sense of it. And so we, we went about to change that model. We changed it. It was difficult. It was hard. A lot of hard decisions had to be made. Uh, but you saw, as you mentioned, an orderly process at the border um, where some predictability for Border Patrol officers could be had. And unfortunately, this administration has decided, let's discard the work of the last four years and let's go back to the way it was under Obama when uh, catch and release was in full force and you had overwhelming numbers. And we're right back to that today and we're back to a broken immigration system. But it seems as though they've, they've done this by design. Everything that they've campaigned on, they have implemented. And it's unfortunate because I think they are playing to the left wing of their party in trying to fill campaign promises. And that's not good for the American people. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the Joe Biden, Kamala Harris approach to the border 
it's stunning to me that, by the way, that Joe Biden had never, never, his 50 years in Congress, in the Senate, he's, he's never been to the border, even as president. And yet implementing these policies that these radical far left wing of the party want, they want to abolish ICE, they don't like the border patrol, they want open borders, and they spieled an incentive and a signal to the rest of the world that, hey, come here because... We're just going to let you through. In fact, we'll help ferry you to where you want to go. And so here we're using taxpayer dollars to put people on this airplane. And I think what's very telling is they, they do this in the dead of night, trying to make sure that nobody sees it. I thought uh, Peter Ducey in his, uh, there at the White House, is the White House correspondent for Fox News, did a great job of asking uh, Jen Psaki about this. Uh, it's about a minute long. Let's listen to clip 22, Peter Ducey talking to Jen Psaki. Why is the administration flying thousands of migrants from the border to Florida and New York in the middle of the night? Uh, well, I'm not sure that it's in the middle of the night, but let me tell you what's happening here. Um, it is our 4:29 a.m. Well, he, very he, early in the morning. Here we are talking on. about early flights, earlier than you might like to take a flight. Um, it is our legal responsibility to safely care for unaccompanied children until they swiftly can be swiftly unified with a parent or a vetted sponsor, and that's something we take seriously. We have a moral, a right obligation to uh, com- to do that and to deliver on that. As a part of the unification process, our office of Refugee Resettlement facilitates travel for children in its custody to their families or sponsors across the country. So in recent weeks, uh, unaccompanied children pass through the Westchester Airport, which I think is what you're referring to, en route to their final destination to be unified with their parents or vetted sponsor. It's no surprise uh, that kids can be seen traveling through states, uh, not just New York. It's something that we're also working to unite children with their family members or vetted sponsors in other parts of the country as well. What's your uh, what's your take on that? Well, it, it, the the crisis that we have with thousands of minors that they have to use they have to use flights to get them around the country is solely because of the the administration's policies, right? If they hadn't exempted all minors from Title Forty Two, we wouldn't have thousands of minors that we now have to bus and fly around to different parts of the country. So that's point one. Point two would be. Look, at the end of the day, they're doing this in the middle of the night because they have so many that they have to transport. My guess is that they are running these flights 24-7 in the middle of the day, in the middle of the night, because they have so many that they have to push away from the border because they're overwhelmed in number. And then point number three would be this administration actually reduced the vetting of those sponsors. So as a minor, as they come in, they get placed with a sponsor. During the Trump administration, we put some very heavy vetting requirements in place because we wanted to make sure that those sponsors uh, were safe to put children in touch with. This administration reduced the vetting requirements because, in their own words, it took too long to get the children placed. And that's because they had too many of them in custody. So every time they create a problem and then they want to pat on the back for trying to solve the problem that they created – and it's just a self-fulfilling prophecy. This goes around and around in a circle. They want credit for processing kids uh, more quickly and shipping them to different parts of the country in a more efficient manner. And that's the wrong approach. We should be stopping this type of behavior, this human trafficking that we are seeing. And in one sense, the federal government is that last link in the human smuggling chain. The, the traffickers get them all the way to the border and then hand them over to the Border Patrol 
who then ships them to points all, all around this country. And so it's a broken system. The catch and release system is broken, but yet that's what this administration loves to see. Yeah, you're t- we're talking about minors here, and uh, we're talking about uh, people that are not adults. And I, I think the tragedy, the, the uh, I mean, unforced error, the thing that can be totally avoided is the idea that we would take a minor and have them placed with somebody other than their parent without the maximum amount of vetting that we possibly can. And it just... I think that we're going to see, and I said this last hour, I think we're going to see these horrific stories about gangs from MS-13 to other gangs to the drug cartels to the sex trafficking on what happens with these minors. And complicit is Kamala Harris and Joe Biden and their policies of placing minors, minors in the hands of somebody who we don't truly know or that that person, that kid doesn't even totally know. Well, that's absolutely right. I would take it a step further. Not only are they doing that, but once they release that minor to those sponsors, Jason, they don't track the kids anymore. So it's very difficult to know what happens to these children. Uh, Where do they go? What kind of environment are they in six months, you know, one year later? There's no requirement, nor does the Biden administration want to follow up on the hundreds of thousands of children that they have released. And so, like I said, it's it's a very dangerous situation, the fact that they rolled back some of the vetting that was put in place over the last four years is concerning because they want to do they want to process more and more of them. It's it's simply the wrong approach into the day. You know, it what are they supposed to do, whether you're a minor or an adult, what are you supposed to do in terms of you're here illegally, you're not a I mean you you, you didn't get a visa um, and so what are you supposed to do for income, for a job, for school, for shelter, for, uh, for, for medicine? Like, what do they expect that these people by the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, are supposed to do to legally and lawfully be in the country? Well, that's a great question. Again, they, they are going, I suspect that the vast majority of them are claiming asylum. So they start going through an immigration court proceeding, which, as we know, is, is, is just fraud. It's just fraud is rampant in that system. But they're not worried about that. Um, and so they get a, a court date months, months, even a year uh, in the future. Now, in the, in the process, depending on how their immigration proceeding goes, they can get a work permit. So they can start working. Uh, but they can't really do much more than that at the end of the day. So a lot of these individuals rely on other adults and other sponsors that are here in the U.S. to, to help support them. But what we do know is that they, you know, they will start working illegally. They start working under the table for cash and, and the like. And so it just continues this cycle. Um, and the Biden administration, you know, they want you to think that all of these individuals are minors or families that they're children or family that are running away from a bad situation. And that's simply not the case. It's MS-13 gang members. It's national security concerns. There's a whole host of individuals coming across that border, 200,000 in the month of August alone, uh, that we need to be worried about. So this is not only a humanitarian issue, also a national security and public safety issue. Now, you oversaw uh, uh, one of the larger departments uh, there in the federal government, I would imagine that the morale for the Border Patrol, ICE, uh, and alike, that 
the removal operations. I, I, I've got to imagine the morale is really low. But you know what? The more I think about it, the more I think, man, I don't know that the Democrats care. I think that is part of their plan to make this such an un, just unsatisfying, impal- you know, just it's just not a palatable job. And then we have this mask mandate that's going, or this um, a vaccine mandate that's about to hit them the first part of November. I'm guessing that a certain percentage of them decided, I don't want to get the vaccine. Or they have said, I may have gotten the vaccine, but I'm not going to tell you whether I got the vaccine or not. That it's none of your business. And that there'll be a whole host, like we've seen in police departments, another wave of Border Patrol agents ultimately leave their jobs. It's not a high-paying job. It should be, but it's not. How do you think the morale of the Border Patrol, ICE, and the others is going to is is working right now? Well, it's it's certainly not good. You know, the the Border Patrol officers that I talk to and officials, I would say that morale is at an all-time low, Uh, not only because, you know, they're hired to do a job, and the Biden administration has told them don't enforce certain laws. If you're an ICE agent, you can't remove individuals who come here illegally. It's literally in their guidelines. (laughs) Simply breaking the law, coming here illegally is no longer grounds for you to be removed alone. You have to do three or four other very bad things in order to be removed. And so it's very difficult as a law enforcement officer, you want to be able to do your job and enforce the law, and you're being told not to. Now, on top of that, you're also being demonized by the president and by the secretary. When you have Border Patrol officers on horseback doing their job, and the president says, you know, they, they'll pay for what they did, and you have the, the secretary 24 hours later saying, you know, the actions are, are despicable or the like, uh, without any investigation. Um, they understand what that means. They're being thrown under the bus day in and day out. They're being told that the, the crisis on the border is, is because of them and not because of the policies. And then you, you throw on a vaccine mandate for Border Patrol officers. Just think about that. They've been on the job since day one. Many of them have gotten COVID, so they have antibodies. Some may or may not have gotten vaccinated. But every migrant that they come into contact with is given a choice. The migrants are actually given a choice of whether or not they want a vaccine or not. And if they choose not to, well, then guess what? They're not quarantined. They're simply put on a plane and, and sent to communities all over the country. And so their policy is, is beyond hypocritical. It's, it just doesn't make any sense. And as a law enforcement officer, you're seeing this and you're very disgruntled and your morale is very low. Yeah, it really is just unconscionable that 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 the reality of somebody who comes here illegally does not have to go through the same same stringent standards as your suspicionless, you know, regular American. I, I the idea that they that these people that are here illegally, a huge percentage of them have COVID or don't have the vaccine, but the administration does not care. They just want to pump them into our into the homeland as fast as possible. Doesn't matter if there's minors, if they're if they're adults, just want to get them out there. It really is a sad situation. But appreciate you sharing your uh, Chad Wolf sharing your insight and your expertise. Uh, thank you for the job that you did. It's a tough job there at Homeland Security, but thank you for that. And thanks for joining us today on the on the Guy Benson Show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's certainly an honor. Thank you. Thank you. All right, we'll be back with more of the Guy Benson Show right after this.
You're listening to a new generation of talk. Generation of talk. Guy Benson. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Jason Chaffetz and the host of the Jason in the House podcast, but I'm filling in for Guy Benson today. And uh, I got to tell you, there's there's a real already foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the 2022 election. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, who is the minority leader, really does believe that he's going to take back the House. Of course, and Nancy Pelosi is insistent that that's not going to happen. But remember, all 435 people are up for re-election. And it's always difficult. Your first term president, first half, it's always difficult. They almost always lose seats. Uh, Trump was a little bit different. Uh, some others were different along the way. But there was a real just, I mean, after Obama's first term, uh, first two years, they lost a lot of seats. Well, there are seven key um, Democrats that have already announced retirement um, Ann Kirkpatrick, for instance, out of Arizona, Sherry Bustos of Illinois, um, Ron Kind of Wisconsin, their, uh, Democratic Rep uh, David Price of North Carolina, Mike Doyle of Pennsylvania. And then you add to that the uh, Budget Committee Chairman, uh, Congressman John Yarmouth. I served with a lot of these people, a lot of them good, decent people. I disagree with them philosophically and they're in their approach uh, and voting patterns. But, you know, good people who have served. Um, but this creates more opportunity for Republicans. There are some Republicans that have announced their retirement. That's inevitable. But if the country thinks it's off track, if inflation's high, if they can't get the food or they can't have the toilet paper when they go to Costco, if foreign affairs aren't going well, if their pocketbooks, they're losing ground because inflation's so high and they're they're not getting the raises that they got. All of these things, if the energy supply, the cost of gasoline is going up uh, exponentially, these are all signs that do not point to something good for the Democrats. And I do believe, my personal opinion is, that with reconciliation, the transportation infrastructure bill, and all of the other spending that is going along the way, guess what? Democrats have this insatiable desire for taxes. They have an insatiable desire for um, spending and more government. They fundamentally do believe at their core that more government makes for a better country. Uh, I happen to believe that a limited government is the best recipe, that there is a proper role of government, but it is a limited government. And I think this country has historically shown that it is a center-right country. And when you mislead the country by telling people that reconciliation with trillions of dollars in it is going to cost nothing, that we can just tax the rich into oblivion, that they can pay for it all, I think you're doing a disservice to the country and certainly to those that are trying to get re-elected or elected for the first time seems to me that the Republicans have their best shot that they've had in years of taking over the House and perhaps seeing Kevin McCarthy, the new speaker. We'll be back. With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News Podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. The Guy Benson Show. Almost Guy Benson. I'm Jason Chaffetz filling in for Guy Benson, who's been on a well-deserved vacation out there on the Greek Isles, eating the best of food and 
he'll be back in the chair sooner rather than later and uh, we'll be all the better for it. But we've got some good guests coming up. Um, we got uh, coming up to, later in the show, uh, Steve Womack, congressman out of Arkansas, as well as Alex Gray, the former chief of staff to the National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien, back there at the, uh, and he's got a lot of insight uh, dealing with classified information day in and day out, but a, a great mind, a great thinker about foreign policy and what's going on. Um, but right now, I really want to talk to you, uh, to share some thoughts and perspective and have a little discussion about what's going on with these uh, mask mandates, because, you know, nothing drives people more crazy than, I think, than how the government has rolled this stuff out. I think fundamentally the government has has lost uh, so much credibility. A, I think the messenger has been wrong. I think uh, Dr. Fauci has flipped and flopped and changed his direction uh, I don't know how many times. He's not the only person that can do that job. I think the president would do well for the nation to pat him on the back and say, time to move on. Either fire him or allow him to... Uh, resigned, but he needs to. He 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 needs to. He needs to go. Um, and then they need to put out the science before they actually put out the mandate. If they let the science go out there and let the medical community chew on it a little bit, then I think there'd be a consensus that America would feel more comfortable with. But all too often, what they do is they put out the policy and then they go scramble to try to find the science. So uh, we're pleased to bring into this discussion a a mom uh, who's got a really good perspective of this. We're trying to get uh, Rachel Campos Duffy. She's the co-host of Fox & Friends Weekend and host of From the Kitchen Table podcast with the Duffys from Fox News Podcast. But before I bring her in, I want to play some stuff and uh, just let you just think through the reaction here because I guess what's infuriating, again, Coming out the mandate before you have the science, you got a messenger who's poor, and then you have it goes beyond just being hypocritical. Um, it goes beyond it goes above and beyond just being disrespectful. It's just infuriating, I think, to see so many people in political office at the highest levels preaching something and just saying it has to be that way and imposing all sorts of restrictions on people. And then they not live up to them themselves. And then when they get caught, they've got some lame excuse. I, I think uh, Peter Ducey there, the White House correspondent uh, for Fox News, did a really good job of asking Jen Psaki about a little date night that uh, Joe and Jill Biden, I'm, I'm glad and happy to see him out on the town, the Potomac. You know, they've lived there some 50 plus years and. And uh, they probably know the best restaurants in D.C. And they they had one over there on the Potomac that had a little seafood, a little Italian food. And I'm glad, I, you know, I'm, I want a president and anybody to go out and have an enjoyable, nice night out. But there he is walking around, no mask, holding his head in his hand. like. But they had just implemented a mask mandate. And they demanding everybody else do it except them. So listen to this exchange at the White House. Peter Ducey questioning Jen Psaki. There's a mask requirement inside D.C. restaurants, yet President Biden and the First Lady were not wearing masks while walking around a D.C. restaurant on Saturday. Why? 
Well, I think what we were referring to is a photo of them walking out of a restaurant after they they had eaten, masked in hand, where they had not yet put them back on yet. So I would say, of course, uh, there are moments when we all don't put masks back on as quickly as we should. But I don't think we should lose miss, lose the forest through the trees here. And that our objective here is to get more people vaccinated, make sure that uh, that schools and companies around the country can put in place requirements to save more lives and keep people safer. Uh, and, you know, not overly focus on moments in time that don't reflect overarching policy. It was not just exiting the restaurant, though. He was walking through the restaurant with no mask on. There is a carve out for uh, people under two or people who are actively eating or drinking. So I'm just curious why the president was doing this. I think I just addressed it, Peter. Okay. Yeah, I, I always love it when a White House spokesperson is um, feels compelled to say, well, let's not just focus on a moment in time. That's what she needs to do when she's representing the president of the United States. So pleased to have Rachel Campos Duffy joining us now, co-host Fox and Friends Weekend and host of From the Kitchen Table podcast with the Duffies uh, from Fox News podcast. It's a good one. I encourage you to listen to it. But Rachel, thanks so much for joining us. And what was your reaction when you heard Jen Psaki say, oh, let's just not focus on a moment in time? Honestly, BS. Um, I just think I'm so tired of the mass mandates. I'm so tired of getting on an airplane and having people force me to wear a mask when I've already had COVID, by the way. So I have lots. I'm like superwoman with my natural immunities. And then they say, then I can take my mask off if I'm snacking because COVID somehow knows I'm snacking and that's okay. It's just dumb. And I was just, uh, looking today, um, you know, my favorite website, the Daily Mail, Jason. I'm, <laughs> I love the Daily Mail. But they had a great story out of Colorado um, about teachers actually taping kids' masks if their masks flip. And so these kids in this Colorado school say their teachers walk around with tape tied to their belts. And if, oh. they're, if a student's mask flips, they'll literally tape it. I was so angry about it. This is child abuse. I'm so damn sick and tired. Um, it's bad enough what, you know, the hypocrisy that you point out at that restaurant, Jason, but when Democrats use our children to push political objectives and they ban their smiles and ruin their childhoods um, and, 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 you know, make them wear masks when they play basketball or tennis. I mean, this is, it's outrageous. I'm sick of it. And I think it's really time for civil disobedience. Yeah, you know, I heard this uh, tennis coach. He was talking about, look, uh, this is singles tennis. They are 30 to 60 feet away from each other, and they're wearing masks outdoors. There's nothing in the science that suggests that that does something to help them. And, and compounding this are now these vaccine mandates where people are losing their jobs. They may or may not have gotten a vaccine. They may or may not have had COVID. They may feel like it's none of your business to dive into my medical record as to whether or not I can work in this country. And so there are a lot of people standing up on principle, but the Democrats, listen to this Mayor Jenny Durkin, who, she's the mayor of Seattle, a Democrat, saying that, yeah, workers have a choice, but listen to the way she says that workers have a choice. Cut three. We want to have our valued employees, but we need for public health for them to be vaccinated. So I'm not going to make any prejudgments until we see what the lay of the land is. If people make the choice that they don't want to keep their jobs because they don't want to be vaccinated, they will have that choice. I hope they don't make it. What's your reaction to that? Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's 
so infuriating. So you're the government gets to decide some health bureaucrats and these corporations that are totally in bed with the federal government get to decide, you know, that whether you get to make a living or not, whether you get to, um, you know, uh, put food on the table and then for them to word it as if that's your choice. Of course, it's not your choice. And again, I, you know, I just, um, was talking with uh, Senator Rand Paul on my podcast, Jason, and he kept emphasizing, and this is something we all really need to, you know, take note of. There are no studies being done about people who have had COVID um, and what the results are if they get the vaccine. So we, all the studies that have been done on the vaccine have been done with people who have not had COVID. We do not have yet any studies or any results from studies about what happens to people who take the vaccine, but they've already had COVID, someone like myself. That's outrageous. Think about, Jason, you know better than anybody how much money our government has, you know, plowed out um, for COVID, um, how much corruption and grift there's been with this money that they couldn't come up with that study. And they also don't have a study on the effects of masks on children um, uh, physically and also psychologically. What the hell? Like, what is going on? Where did all this money go? And why aren't the most basic things um, been done? regarding COVID and the effects of things that they're forcing us to do as citizens and in relinquishing our rights. Yeah, I've heard her, Dr. Nicole Sapphire and others uh, talk about this and the lack of studies in the science. Again, it goes back to my what I was saying earlier is they come out with a the policy, then they scramble to go figure out the science to somehow justify it. And it, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. The frustration is boiling over, particularly with people uh, it was highlighted on Fox News at night uh, with Shannon Bream, uh, Jason Rance was on talking about the frustration of a police officer in Seattle, Washington. Listen to him on Cut 4. Well, officers feel like their arms are being twisted, that they, for the last 18 months, worked using PPE. And at that time, last year at this time, there was 0% vaccinated. So they were able to still police. And yet now we're at a point where in this city and in this county, and frankly, in this state, you've got 80% of the population being vaccinated. So it doesn't quite make sense to say right now it's more dangerous to police than it was last year. That just logically doesn't make any sense. The mayor today also came out and claimed that there were only 24 officers who didn't turn in their vaccine paperwork, which is wholly false. That number is at least 123. It's as much as over 200 of officers who are either unvaccinated or vaccinated, but just choose not to turn over the paperwork. And really, this is what this is about. A lot of these officers are, in fact, vaccinated. They just don't think that it is appropriate to ask for their private medical data. Yeah. So when in the country, when in the world did the Democrats start to believe that your personal health care information be, should be something that is subjective, that, that some government bureaucrat can look at and make a decision as to whether or not you're employed? That is just crazy. Yeah, you know, I've I've been really surprised that um, that gay Americans haven't been more upset. I mean, gay Americans fought really hard. You know, it was really important for them with with the AIDS epidemic that they not be discriminated against. And there were, you know, uh, policies put in place to protect people from discrimination um, because of being HIV positive. And yet in this case, you know, vaccinated versus unvaccinated, um, I don't see, a, you know, 
people who otherwise were really for, you know, HIPAA and all kinds of, you know, medical privacy standing up. And it's really just Republicans. Although I will say, Jason, one of the interesting things I've noticed, and you can see things in your own, in our own families, you know, dynamic. Sean has 11 brothers and sisters. And so people fall on all spectrums, you know, from indifferent to politics, to independent, to Republican, to Republican, but they're for like Bush kind of Republicans to Republicans that are Trump Republicans, all the way to he has sisters who are Bernie Sanders supporters. His mom is too. And what's been fascinating in this pandemic and all this COVID stuff is this alliance between the freedom-loving conservatives in the family and many of the liberal Bernie supporters who are really for health liberty. Some of them are really, you know, they only eat organic. They're very conscious about what they put in their body. Sean has a sister who owns a health food, several health food stores um, in Southern California. And so she's, you know, very much against the government telling her what she can and can't put inside of her body um, for obvious reasons. And this, so I do, I do think that there is a lot of overlap politically that there are, there, that that is happening. It's been interesting to see in our families, but I have overall been really disappointed in how submissive our entire population has been to all of this. And I understand the first few weeks, even maybe the first few months, um, but I was kind of over it quite early, Jason, and I was waiting for, you know, this moment where we reached this threshold where Americans said, damn it, we're Americans and we don't take orders from the government like this and we have our rights and we want them back and it's not an emergency anymore and stop this. And I think we're starting to get there. Do you feel that way, Jason? I hope so. I I, I think this is such an invasion of privacy and I'm disappointed that the true liberals the think of the ACLU, think of those types of people. They they would have never, never taken this if it was coming from somebody else. But because it's Democrats, they just kind of lay down their hands and say, yes, we will be submissive. I, I, the idea that somebody can lose their job. You know, I, I think about somebody who's maybe pregnant. Uh, would you take this uh, vaccine if it hasn't been tested like this? I don't think so. A young, healthy person, maybe your early 20s pregnant would you take the vaccine well a lot of people would say no and there's no science to back up that that says you really gosh you're gonna put everybody in danger i I just it really is stunning to me i hope we as a nation pause and look back on it and and make a decision that is is more about personal choice personal freedom and self-responsibility that that's that's what i hope happens and Listen, I wish we had more time, but Rachel Campos Duffy, thank you so much for joining us. She's the co-host of Fox and Friends Weekend and host of the Kitchen Table Podcast with the Duffies from Fox News Podcast. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us on The Guy Benson Show. I do appreciate it. Thanks, Jason. We'll be back with more of The Guy Benson Show right after this. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. America lost one of its best uh, this uh, this earlier this week uh, in Colin Powell. Uh, Colin Powell was a unique American. He served his country dutifully. 
Um, he helped Republicans. He helped Democrats. He was an amazing American who who personified leadership. He had confidence. Uh, he had uh, competence. He knew what he was talking about. And he was a true leader. And he inspired a lot of people. And he had a big impact on this country. Let's listen in on a little speech he gave, at least an excerpt of the speech he gave back in 2011. Leadership ultimately comes down to creating conditions of trust within an organization. Good leaders are people who are trusted by followers. Leaders take organizations past the level that the science of management says is possible. Uh, one of my sergeants back in uh, the infantry school at Fort Benning almost 50 years ago, which is where I learned everything I ever got to learn about leadership, was at the infantry school. And he said to me one day, he said, Lieutenant, you'll know you're a good leader when people follow you, if only out of curiosity. <laughs> and so they would teach us at the infantry school, no matter how cold it is, Lieutenant, you must never look cold. No matter how hungry you all are, Lieutenant, you must never appear hungry. No matter how terrified you are, Lieutenant, you must never look terrified. Because if you are scared, terrified, hungry, and cold, they will be scared, terrified, hungry, and cold. Colin Powell. Sad to see him pass away. I had the honor and privilege of shaking his hand at a corporate event a few years ago. Uh, he was a man who impacted the United States, who was patriotic to his core and achieved things in service of his country that not many others had been able to achieve. And he did so with integrity and character, uh, a belief in his country. He had a wonderful family that he was dedicated to. And that type of military service, service at the White House, uh, took an untold uh, number of hours and toll, I'm sure, on his family. But we are a better nation for having a person like Colin Powell serve and i hope there are others that will rise up and exemplify and and uh, personify the type of character that we saw in colin powell this is the guy benson show we'll be back after this Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. It's five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Well, almost Guy Benson. I'm Jason Chaffetz filling in for Guy Benson. He's been off in Greece enjoying his time, eating the best of food, and uh, I'm sure we'll come back with uh, a rest and relaxed uh, look and feel, and uh, we're just happy for him. Thanks for letting me uh, sit in and join you. Before we get to our next guest, I do need to... I want to report what the U.S. attorney in Los Angeles is saying. They've tweeted out that the federal a federal grand jury has indicted uh, United States Representative Jeff Fortenberry with one count of scheming to falsify and conceal material facts and two counts 
of making false statements to federal investigators looking into illegal contributions to his 2016 campaign. They have a full announcement coming, and I'm sure Fox News will cover it. All right, I want to transition now to um, somebody I was privileged to serve with in the United States Congress. He's the congressman from Arkansas's 3rd Congressional District. It's uh, Representative Steve Womack. He's, you can also refer to him as Colonel or Sir uh, because he was in the Arkansas Army National Guard and uh, just an all-around wonderful person who works hard and knows his stuff. Uh, help, and, help me to welcome to the show uh, Congressman Steve Womack. Hey, Jason. It's great to be with you. And uh, I miss your service in Washington, D.C., but I do get a chance to, to see you on on television occasionally and uh, see you commenting on the uh, politics of the day. But, uh, boy, what a, what a great honor it is to be with you. Well, thank you. Um, you know, there's some people that you hang out with and that you serve with and uh, some you'd rather not hang out with and serve with. <laughs> but you were the one of the people that I actually enjoyed uh, the company on and off the field, so to speak, and and thank you for your service uh, in our military too. I I was once on a congressional delegation trip, and I was down in uh, the southern part of of Egypt, and I uh, went into this operating base, this forward operating base that we were involved and engaged with, and there was your picture up on the wall. Um, as somebody who had served at pretty high capacity there, and uh, I can't thank you enough for your service to our military. Well, Jason, you're very kind. Uh, you're, you're talking about the what I consider to be one of the great peacekeeping missions of our time uh, that was established by the uh, peace accords that were signed, uh, you know, back in uh, the late 70s, and the Multinational Force and Observers Sinai Mission, uh, which uh, exists even today. Uh, keeps the peace between, um, you know, some competing uh, ideologies in that region of the world. I think it's very important, but right after 9-11, uh, I, I had the privilege of commanding an infantry battalion of the Arkansas National Guard, and we were the first group called up. Uh, the 101st was scheduled into the MFO. They had to go to Afghanistan uh, to do uh, some very important missions there, and uh, they took a bunch of Arkansas Guardsmen into the Sinai Peninsula, and we did the observe and report mission there for six months, and it was one of the best times of my life. I learned a lot about it uh, uh, and from it. Uh, it was a life-changing, life-altering experience, and uh, one that I'm grateful to have had the privilege of, uh, of conducting uh, during my time in, in uniform. Well, there's so many that answer the call to serve. They get out there, they protect the United States. They they serve the United States of America overseas. When they sign up, they don't necessarily know where they're going, what they're going to be doing, but then they find themselves in another another part of the world away from their family uh, with other men and women from our country and can't thank them enough. And I think that's actually a good segue to the concern that I think a lot of Americans have for their fellow Americans that are stuck uh, and they're in Afghanistan. Now, the president of the United States, Joe Biden, promised that we would stay there until he gets out all of the Americans. But let's listen to KT McFarlane on Fox and Friends yesterday because I'm not sure we've gotten them all out yet. Cut 14. The State Department said, oh, it's a handful, just 100. The, St the Pentagon, however, was saying it was several thousand Americans left behind. This is good news that we're getting them out. 
Uh, the bad news is that we left them in the first place. And the big question mark is how many are left behind. Nobody knows. But it's not one or two. Chances are it could even be as much as a thousand if you listen to the Pentagon reports. Congressman, what's your, from your vantage point, your military background, what, uh, what, what can you tell us about this situation and how should we all view it? Well, very concerning, Jason. Uh, and, and look, I, I think I speak for most people who have worn the uniform. It's just one of the things, I mean, it's part of the soldier's creed. You never leave a, uh, you know, a fallen comrade. Right? In this case, you, you just don't leave Americans behind. Uh, this thing was botched uh, from the very beginning. It, uh, it, it was a failure on many fronts. Uh, unfortunately, we saw the loss of life uh, uh, with uh, some very uh, heroic Americans paying the ultimate sacrifice uh, during the conduct of, of that particular uh, retrograde, if you want to call it. Uh, I mean, it's just, it just wasn't a well-thought-out, uh, well-executed uh, program, and, and we're still seeing the effects of it today. Uh, but I think the larger issue is uh, if the greatest military power on the planet, uh, and, and, and let me be careful to uh, establish that the State Department was basically in charge of most of this, but uh, with U.S. military support, but if the greatest military on the planet cannot execute something um, uh, that was pretty well telegraphed in terms of our withdrawal from Afghanistan, if we can't do it in such a way that we can at least secure the people who call themselves Americans, then what does it say about our ability to conduct uh, multiple contingency operations around the globe from some of the uh, some some of the you know the, the people that uh, our adversaries in some cases pacing adversaries that uh, would, would would like to uh, replace us as the military power for the world what, what does it say about us and and uh, and, and look I'm I, I, I was concerned about it remain concerned about it and and I think that a lot of people are looking at America and uh, wondering uh, are we the the great military power that we profess to be and uh, is this indicative of uh, how we'll conduct future operations so uh, Look, I, I give the administration some very low marks for how they executed this withdrawal, and uh, and there still remain a lot of unanswered questions. Yeah, I you know how they made this decision that they would um, abandon Bagram Air Force Base and rely on the uh, other airport, which is not nearly as secure. Uh, how that decision was made, I I think there needs to be a great deal. Uh, more clarity into how that decision was ultimately made. I know they did. They just pick a number and say twenty five hundred troops, but then they had to look at it and say, "Look, we have to protect the embassy. We have to protect the the Kabul, um, but we, you know, airport. But then we also have to deal with with Bagram. We can't do all three, so let's just let Bagram go to you know, uh, just let him take it over. I. It's just stunning to me and how we left. I don't know how many billions or dollars worth of, of equipment in the hands of the bad guys. Like, I just don't understand why we don't destroy that on our way out the door. Well, I share those concerns, and having spent quite a quite a bit of my time in the military in 
in in in an environment where we were giving what we call decision briefs in the military. That is, you know, to the commanding officer on on all decisions. Here here are your options. Here are the courses. Here are the more, most likely courses of action. Here are the more more probable courses of action. You know, I mean, when you're war gaming, right. uh, the, the the things that are going on in a in a in an environment like a conflict. Then you present uh, ideas to your commander uh, in in hopes of uh, you know of convincing them to go your way. I suspicion that what happened with Bagram was the fact that it was going to require a little bit more uh, troop support in order to be able to secure it. I, th- I think the right answer would have been to keep it open and bring the uh, troop levels up to a to the extent where we can at least have because it had a couple of runways, uh, Kabul doesn't, and and I think it would have given us a little bit more flexibility. And uh, what would have been the problem with having a, a few hundred more, maybe a couple of thousand more troops uh, dispatched to the area for the purposes of ensuring that we had uh, had these options at our disposal? So these are all things I think that need to come out as we investigate this entire withdrawal. Now, going to another part of the globe, I mean, part of the challenge for the military moving forward is you've got to be able to fight multiple fights, at least on two different fronts. Um, and the supposed uh, you know, reports are that North Korea is firing uh, two ballistic missiles into the Sea of Japan, that according to sources in Tokyo. You also have this report out of, uh, you know, supposedly caught off guard that uh, China... Uh, was launching some uh, new uh, military equipment that has the ability to do some things that we may not be able to do. So, how do we how do we tackle that? How do we handle that? How do we properly prepare for that? Because, quite frankly, I look at the military and they seem more preoccupied on figuring out who goes into which bathroom than they are on these types of real threats. Well, it's a it's a great question, and uh, and and let me just go to the kind of the thirty thousand foot level on your question, Jason, and that is. How do you um, ha- how do you fund national security for this country? And it's in our Constitution. Provide for the common defense of this country. How 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 do you do that? Well, too often we uh, we, we look at it from a from a numbers standpoint, a budgetary standpoint uh, that we got X amount to spend, so let's spend it the best way we can. I I just think that's a horrible way. Uh, to budget for national security. I think what you do is you look at the threat, you look at the known and perceived and potential threats out there, and that you uh, you determine what it would take in order for you to be able to guard and prepare against those kinds of threats. Uh, and then you add those totals up, and that becomes your defense budget. But uh, what we're doing right now is we're attempting. I say we. I'm not part of this, but but the left is trying to uh, to shave off a whole lot of money that would normally go to national security infrastructure and people and training and those kinds of things for you know for purposes of battling this threat, which is our constitutional duty. And instead, uh, you know, transferring a lot of those savings over into programs. That, uh, that that are on the non-defense side of the uh, of the spending ledger, and 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 we're seeing a lot more of this. And, and in fact, we're in a continuing resolution right now till the third of December for that very reason. 
And, you know, the, the left, uh, the, the, the real socialist part of the left, wants uh, a big spending package before they do infrastructure. And we can only come to agreement on spending for dis- the discretionary budget, which includes national security, up through the 3rd of December. And who knows what's going to happen when we get to that cliff, uh, because they don't really have a plan that, that I think, um, you know, is coherent right now to the extent where we can kind of predict what's going to happen at that stage of the game. But I am very concerned about what's going on around the globe. It's not a safe world. There are a lot of people that would like to do us harm. And, um, and, and the advantages that we have always had down through the years, down through the decades, uh, is beginning to erode, uh, and it ought to concern everybody listening to this program. Well, that's that's the concern. We we you know we've got to be able to have the we biggest, baddest, safest military fighting force that we possibly can, and the men and women who serve, they got to have the best equipment to make sure that they can push back. But you know, I worry that that China is just waiting for the Olympics to come and go, and that they'll just they see a weak president, they just say, yeah, Taiwan, now is the time to pull the trigger and. Bring it under the fold of what we're trying to do. These are the concerns, and I just don't know that our fighting force has the type of confidence in this this leader, our commander-in-chief, that maybe they had on under, say, Ronald Reagan. Well, the fact that we don't have a defense budget right now, we've got a, a mark in, on the Hask side, we've got a mark on the Senate uh, Armed Services side, but uh, look, we, we have to be able to fund our, our, our national security programs at a, at a, at a rate that uh, allows for us to, uh, to be able to accept uh, the, the most right. minimum of risk out there. Uh, and, and we're finding that elusive right now, given all the demands for spending on all these other social programs. Well, you uh, you certainly have the right background for this, given your military experience. You were also the former chairman of the House Budget Committee, and uh, getting the financing of this right uh, is pivotal. I can't thank you enough for your service, for your personal friendship along the way. Uh, Congressman Steve Womack from Arkansas's 3rd Congressional District, thanks for joining us today on The Guy Benson Show. Jason, it's great to be with you. Uh, again, we miss you here in Washington. Uh, continued best wishes to you and the family. Okay. Oh, very good. Uh, thank you. Steve Womack, um, we'll be back with more of The Guy Benson Show right after this. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Jason Chaffetz, filling in for Guy Benson on The Guy Benson Show. And um, I got to tell you, I was very encouraged to see the Inspector General for the State Department uh, agreeing or announcing that they're going to probe the Biden administration's chaotic uh, Afghanistan withdrawal. Uh, That's something that they should be doing. Uh, Clearly, they should be doing. Terribly disappointed that the Congress given that the Democrats are in charge, are not going to probe this. This is It was disastrous. You had a number of Democrats express that. One or two hearings here and there is not going to do it. It needs a deep dive. We better figure this out. Uh, we better understand how these decisions were made and what worked and what didn't work. You know, we rely on these inspectors general to do a lot of this heavy lifting for us. We have... 72 inspectors general. They employ about 13,500 people. They are essentially the internal auditors. 
And big agencies like the Department of Defense will have multiple inspector generals, uh, Health and Human Services, for instance. When we first got engaged with Afghanistan, I think it became known to the members of Congress, I was not in Congress at that time, that it was going to be overwhelming. So they created what's called the CIGAR, the Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction. And I think anything that anybody wants to know in terms of the history about the re the reconstruction effort why were we not able to turn over um afghanistan after so many years the longest war in the history of the united states to have them be a fruitful uh and self-sustaining government needs to pour through those uh 52 plus i think there's 52 more than 52 quarterly reports that were done by the Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction. And really the person, the public, the media, and Congress needs to hear from is John Sopko. John Sopko has been that Inspector General, and he, I think, has a duty and obligation to make sure that we get out there and have that information. But the Inspector General is the right way to go. Now, that does not absolve the Congress from doing its role. If we just simply allowed the Biden administration or any administration to do an investigation of itself, if you just allowed that to happen, we wouldn't have any congressional investigations. The Oversight Committee, which I formally chaired, was founded in 1814. And the whole idea and the whole premise was that it was going to be looking at any and all expenditures made by the United States Congress to inform future legislation. Sometimes they've stepped out of those realms, but in this particular case with Afghanistan, Congress needs to be looking at it with the appropriate committees, with the right staffing, and with the right members. And it also needs to happen through the Inspector General community. In this case, one is doing it, but I want to hear from the Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction. He is also one that we should hear from. I'm Jason Chaffetz filling in for Guy Benson. This is The Guy Benson Show. Stay with us. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Hey, this is Jason Chaffetz. This is not Guy Benson. Sorry to let you down there, but uh, I'm filling in for Guy. He's been off on this wonderful vacation in Greece and uh, based on some Instagram photos. The boy, the guy is eating well, I can tell you that, because uh, he's getting some good food and hopefully some good rest and relaxation. Um, the guy's one of my uh, my favorite people out there. I really do enjoy uh, interacting with him, and my relationship at Fox News has uh, allowed us to get to know each other a little bit, and um, I just think he's a, he's a great uh, conservative mind, a good thought uh, leader out there on, on just the perspective of the country. Um, I want to transition now a, a little bit. We were talking earlier with Steve Womack, who served in uh, serves in the United States Congress, also served in the military. But I think for another perspective on what's going on with our national security, it would be important to, to talk to somebody who is a little bit behind the scenes, wasn't always out in front of the camera because he was the um, chief of staff there at the National Security Council. His name is Alex Gray. So, Alex, thank you so much for joining us today on the Guy Benson Radio Show. Well, thanks for having me, Jason. It's great to be with you. No, I appreciate it. Look, you're kind of one of those workhorses behind the scenes, working with Robert O'Brien there at the National Security Council uh, under the guidance of uh, President Trump. And here we find ourselves, like there's always, there's always something going on um, 
with some of the other uh, wannabe superpowers out there. And I want to get your perspective on it, your thoughts on it, because um, there was this China evidently had done some testing on a nuclear missile uh, capability, some hypersonic uh, technology. Now, the report is that it caught the Pentagon off guard. I hope that's not the case, but um, want to get your perspective and thoughts and help us think through how we should think through what's going on here. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a great question, Jason. And, you know, uh, our, our friend and, and my former boss, Robert O'Brien, was on uh, Martha McCallum on Fox today. And, and you know, as, as he said, as, as in a way only Robert can, can say it so eloquently, you know, when we came into office uh, under President Trump, the U.S. response to China's and Russia's hypersonic ambitions uh, had been dramatically scaled back and cut under President Obama. And, and basically for eight years, the U.S. had, had done very little to keep pace uh, with, with hypersonic technology. And, and for people who aren't really familiar with it, essentially what that means is the, these are uh, missiles that can go in, in its kind of extrapolated form, these are missiles that can go around the world in minutes and can really render a lot of our missile defenses and a lot of our technology, um, if not obsolete, at least uh, yeah, somewhat impotent. And when we came into office, we found ourselves very much behind the eight ball and responding and, and building up our own hypersonic capabilities. And under President Trump's leadership, and, and he's too modest to say it, but under Ambassador O'Brien's leadership and uh, a lot of other people behind the scenes, we were able to, to really step our programs up and we were able to, to start uh, competing with the, with the Chinese in a serious way. And it's, it's one of, uh, personally, it's one of the, the things I was proudest to work on while I was in, the, in government was getting us to a place where we were more competitive in that technology. Unfortunately, as, as you, know, you know well, Jason, we're now in a place where the uh, Biden administration is attempting to scale back our defense budget. Uh, they're attempting yeah. to to make some some I think unfortunate decisions about the amount of of investment that's going to be made in, in certain critical technologies. And what we've learned over the last uh, eight years, but also throughout history, is our our competitors don't stand still. We can take uh, a holiday from history, but our competitors don't do the same. And unfortunately, I think we're we're in a similar place uh, where history may be repeating itself if we continue to to take this. Uh, this pause um, from from doing some of the things we need to be doing to, to stay at the top of the, the technological uh, technological game. Well, it's interesting, though, with the way Jen Psaki tries to spin this and talk about this uh, so-called competition. Listen to her take uh, from the White House podium the other the, the other day. Uh, cut 13. Generally speaking, we've made clear our concern about the military capabilities that the PRC continues to pursue. Uh, and we have been consistent in our approach with China. Uh, we welcome stiff competition, but do we not? We don't do not want that competition to veer into conflict, and that is certainly what we convey privately as well. I I don't know. I I don't see them standing up and taking a tough stance on China. I don't see them living up to their obligation and their candidness. They promise to be the most most ethical uh, administration ever in terms of Hunter Biden and the Biden's personal. Uh, financial interests in China. I, I mean, I just don't see any of that. I don't. I certainly don't feel it. And there are a lot of people, and they're guessing. They're just armchair armchair quarterbacks guessing. 
that after the Olympics this year, China would make its move on Taiwan because they view that Donald that Donald Trump was tough and and uh, would actually come back after him, but that a Joe Biden is pretty pretty soft, pretty weak, and just just not not willing to stand up for anything. Well, I, I think the the signal that was most devastating in that regard, Jason, was Afghanistan. And we, we saw when the U.S. pulled out of Bagram Air Base in the middle of the night without giving any warning to our, our friends in the Afghan government at the time, um, it sent a signal around the world. It wasn't just in Afghanistan. It was heard in Taiwan. It was heard in the Middle East. It was heard in the Western Hemisphere. It was heard in Eastern Europe. Um, and our allies uh, took note, and so did our competitors. And our competitors, whether it's China, whether it's Russia, whether it's Iran, they saw it as weakness, and they started trying to test us. And there's no, in my mind, it wasn't a coincidence that within a couple of weeks of the U.S. Uh, departure from Afghanistan, the ignominious departure, uh, the Chinese set a record for the number of uh, aircraft incursions into Taiwanese airspace, 150 aircraft in, in a four-day period. And, you know, that's, that's uh, a response to American behavior, and it's a response to the Biden administration's policies, and it's a, it's a test. They want to see whether this was a one-time uh, American policy failure or whether it's indicative of something more, uh, more dangerous for us, something that more, you know, the Chinese have been talking about American decline for 15 years, and, and now they're trying to see whether uh, what happened in Afghanistan, whether the cuts to the defense budget, whether this presages American decline, or if it's a temporary setback. And it's, it's I think now it's incumbent on the Biden administration to send a very clear signal uh, that this is this is a temporary setback and we have no intention of, of cutting and running from our obligations around the world. Well, uh, you know, it, it, I want to go back to something you said just a little bit earlier in that previous question, too. You know, with the, the, with the hypersonic uh, missile tests and the, the ability of a, of a Chinese missile within minutes to be able to travel around the globe is, is pretty daunting. Um, you know, I, one of the things I was actually proud of is that uh, Donald Trump came not a military person, uh, not a government uh, person who's been having classified briefings, but he stood up the Space Force. And, you know, I've heard people in the Biden administration mock it and laugh at it. And but they hadn't been privy to these classified reports that showed that, yeah, we better get our act together and make sure that we can protect ourselves and, quite frankly, the world. Um, But primarily the United States of America, it's in our best interest to protect ourselves on what's going on in space. And I think that most people would actually be terrified and surprised by the amount of capability that others are putting into space and weaponizing space. Well, it's, you know, whatever may, you know, whatever kind of mockery might uh, be attached to the Space Force by some of our friends in the, uh, the, the liberal Democrat establishment in Washington, the reality is the Pentagon is continuing forward with essentially the same approach to the Space Force that the Trump administration pursued. And there's a reason for that. It's not politics. It's because they, they've seen the classified intelligence. They've seen, uh, I think, even as important as the classified intelligence, they've listened to what Chinese leaders say publicly about space. And they've looked at the writings of what Chinese generals say about space. They view space as the, the central domain 
for obtaining dominance over the United States in a future conflict. If they can control space, not only can they use hypersonic missiles to neutralize our defenses, but they can take out our satellites. They can render our our Navy and our Air Force uh, in some ways, um, take them off the battlefield, sometimes before the conflict even began in earnest. Um, It it gives them the ability to potentially, in in certain uh, scenarios, they could uh, take some of our nuclear deterrent off the table if you really want to take it to its furthest extreme. So, you know, control of space in modern warfare is absolutely essential to victory on the battlefield. And the Chinese know that. They say it publicly. And there's a reason that most of our senior military leadership are, are I, I think, pretty committed at this point to seeing the Space Force succeed, because they know that it, without American success in, in the space domain, American military leadership is, is going to be in decline. So given your unique experience and looking behind the scene and seeing a lot of things that you've seen along the way, what's your What's your biggest worry? Is it is it cyber? Is it our national debt? Is it like what what keeps Alex Gray concerned and worried about our future? You know, honestly, Jason, um, whenever I'm asked that question, I, I think I surprise a lot of people. To me, it's it's actually economics. I, I actually worry the most about um a combination of the national debt and what the national debt is going to do for our ability to continue um, to to maintain a world class military. But I, I I also worry significantly about things like uh, semiconductor production, the supply chain, our defense industrial base. You know things that we've taken for granted um, for for too many years. A lot of us have this image of the World War II arsenal of democracy, where if we got into a major conflict. You know, Ford and General Motors would just start making aircraft out of a, out of right. a automobile factory. We, we don't live in that world anymore. And, and in order to, to do the types of major uh, production that would be required, you need years in some cases to make these components, uh, to make these major systems, and you need a long time to make components as well. So I, I worry about the fact that um, the United States is, is reliant on its semiconductor uh, production uh, in large part from, from a, a company in, in Taiwan, a great partner, of course, but certainly in a very vulnerable geopolitical position. Uh, I worry about the fact that uh, rare earth elements, rare earth minerals that are a huge component of a lot of our computers and a lot of our military systems, those are, are in many, many cases, they're uh, sourced from vulnerable places in Africa, and they're also sourced from China in a lot of instances. So, I mean, we have a lot of economic issues that President Trump was one of the first people with his business background to speak very eloquently about the nexus between economic security and national security. And it's something too many of our, our Washington politicians and, and national security establishment folks in D.C. overlook. Um, but it's it's really without that economic strength, we aren't going to have uh, yeah. military yeah. strength or national security. Well, let's listen to cut eight, because Carl Icahn, uh, he was on at CNBC and uh, he sees the crisis also. I didn't the question wasn't directly as a, about national security or national defense, but certainly our economic well-being. Listen to what he had to say. In the long run. We are certainly going to hit the wall, and I get everybody, people may say to me, well, anybody can say that. No, but I really think there will be a crisis, the way we're going, the way we're printing up money, the way we're going into inflation. I, I mean, if you look around you, you see this inflation all around you, and I don't know how you deal with that 
in the long term. Now, that's Carl Icahn, who's a pretty smart uh, financial wizard, <laughs> to say the least. I've only got a few seconds here le- left, but um, I really do concur with you that I think, and others have said it, generals have said it too, our economic well-being is really about our future. And if we don't, don't have our financial house in order, we're not going to be able to do what we need to do to make sure that we are the strongest superpower on the face of the planet. No, he's 100% right. And, you know, President Trump led his his national security strategy, his preeminent document that laid out what his approach to protecting our country was with the, the phrase, economic security is national security. And he was one of the first American presidents to say that in modern times. And I think that that for too long, we've overlooked that. And until we, we really come back and embrace that approach, uh, we're going to remain vulnerable to, to the sorts of things that Carl Icahn talked about in that clip. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Like, listen, our, our country is the better for having a person like Alex Gray uh, serve. Uh, we got a lot of good, talented people who are wicked smart that serve behind the scenes. You are one of them in a pivotal role. Fortunately, with the leadership of uh, Ambassador Robert O'Brien there at the National Security, as the National Security Advisor at the and the National Security Council, thanks for just keeping our country safe the times that you were in the, those uh, powerful, pivotal positions. Hard, difficult job, 25 hours a day. I get it. Um, but uh, Alex Gray, thank you so much for joining us on the Guy Benson Radio Show. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Jason. All right, uh, we'll be back with more of the Guy Benson Show right after this. You're listening to Guy Benson. Hey, I'm Jason Chaffetz. I really do appreciate Guy Benson uh, allowing me to fill in for him. I appreciate the great producers that Fox News uh, puts out there that make this hosting this show nice and easy. So thanks, guys. I appreciate your uh, help there. Um, I want to play one more little clip. We put these clips kind of before the show comes together and... uh, Oh, we just have this gem for you. It's uh, cut 19. When you're in the family unit among people who are vaccinated, I think you should just enjoy the holidays as best you can in the family spirit. For those who are not vaccinated, first, I would encourage them very strongly to get vaccinated. But if they're not, they should do what the CDC recommends. Dr. Fauci, uh, you know what? Um, Look, I got vaccinated. Uh, It's your, your personal decision i believe with your medical professional it worked for me and my wife we're the better for it but i think the time is kind of come and gone for uh, dr fauci to exit the stage when you have time for you know posing on the cover of in style magazine maybe you're not spending as much time doing the science that you probably should be doing that's just my take on it and look we're we're uh we're a nation that overcomes challenges, and uh, there's always, always something crazy going on. But you know what? The United States of America is the greatest country that there's ever been. And somehow, some way, we figure out a way to go out and tackle the most difficult things. And you know what? Those answers, those problems, those challenges, by and large, they're not solved in Washington, D.C. They're solved in your own community, your own neighborhood, your own family in your own states that that the answer to the problems and challenges that we face don't keep looking to washington dc for those answers that's not that's not where you're going to find them it's really got to be in the heart and soul of america in those communities and with those individuals 
I believe in the power of self-determination that our country, the freedom that we're given in this country to self-determine where we're going to go. You have the opportunity to fail, quite frankly, and you have the opportunity to have great success. Yeah, the government should have, there needs to be a backstop. We don't want anybody to fall too hard, too far, and not be able to get back up again. But at the same time, when you see all these challenges and you think, where's the justice? Where's this? Where's that? Just remember, somehow, some way, we will figure it out. We do persevere and we do overcome. America eventually gets it. And when politicians are telling us stuff that we know not to be true, they figure that out too. Even though there's a traditional media that may want to say otherwise, guess what? There's always uh, truth to be told and truth will service over the course of time. I'm Jason Chaffetz. Thanks again for allowing me to fill in for The Guy Benson. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.